Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Right. So um, we've, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be doing just a series asking the question why, exploring why we do certain things. So, you know, it, it often happens that we do certain things, um, but we, we either forget or we don't fully understand why we do them. And then we don't do them as well as, or as consistently. We're not as motivated to do them as we would be if we really understood why we do them. So it's important to sometimes just stop and ask the question, why do we do the things that we do? Um, so all too often we, we fail to do the right things, or we fail to do things right, or because we fail to understand why we need to do those things. And, and so in the next couple of weeks, we're just going to stand still and explore a bit why are we doing certain just basic things that we take for granted. So last week we spoke about why do we do small groups. And um, this week we're going to talk about why do we do large groups. Why do we meet like this in public worship services? Why, why is it important? And obviously, you know, it's a big topic, so I won't be able to give you all the answers why. But at least, you know, hopefully I can point you in the right direction with that. So let's, maybe I can start with a testimony. Becca, can you come forward? Um, she said she'd, she'd uh, share a testimony with us. And just, you know, what, you know, gathering, corporate public gatherings have meant to her. So, Becca. Let's hear. Morning, church. Um, I don't know why I'm sounding extremely nervous, but anyway. Um, so I have always gone to serve to not only Sunday gatherings. I grew up in a, um, a Jewish-believing community, so we went on a Friday night in my early years. But it's really a habit that my parents instilled in me. And when I was young, we always used to sing the song called Hinematov, which is it's, it's Hebrew, but it, you also sing an English part, and it's from... Psalm 153 and says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together. And then the chorus is basically in unity over and over again. And that for me, it's such a joyous song, but it also really sums up for me how, um, what it is to come in worship together and worship together and to hear God's word together. Um, so I really get so much joy and life um, from coming on a Sunday morning and worshiping with everyone um, from praying together, I love going to intercession and praying for people after the service and um, hearing the word. Like I, I love listening to global stuff online and other pastors, what people are preaching about, but hearing what God is saying to the local body. Like I have never gone to a church service, and well, the only time I've ever gone to a church service and heard the sermon, and it hasn't affected me in some ways when I haven't been willing to listen to God. So it's always, it's always meant something to me. Um, and that habit um, that my parents instilled me, I actually only really thought about this during worship now. Um, many years I've, had, I've struggled with depression and health issues and different things like that. And that habit that my parents instilled in me so often brought me to church when I didn't want to be here. Like as an introvert, I want to be on my own. I want to just curl up in a corner and hide. But having, coming to church and seeing my family and celebrating God and everything has always drawn me back, and I've found so much healing in that. Thanks, Biggs. So, um, you know... I, I was thinking about it. You know, church can be strange and a bit awkward. 
we, a couple of, when was it? A Friday a week ago, we watched a movie. Was it Friday a week ago? Uh, called the, the Most Reluctant Convert. Uh, and it's, it's just a, a very quick, just a little bit more than an hour uh, biography, bio, biographical movie about C.S. Lewis, you know, the guy who wrote Narnia and Mere Christianity and so on. And he said, you know, he finds church very awkward and he doesn't like the hymns. You know, he, he, was, he majored in English, so he, he studied poetry and all that kind of stuff. And he said the poetry in the hymns is not very good, and he doesn't like the music. And he, and he doesn't always like the people, you know. Some of the people are a bit strange and so on. But when he got saved, sort of according to his testimony, against his will, he called himself the most reluctant convert in England, you know. God sort of dragged him kicking and screaming into the kingdom. Um, he was an atheist, a very committed atheist and a philosophy professor. And, you know, then God sort of against his will almost, or <laughs> well, at least that's how it felt to him, uh, saved him. He always says, you know, it, it's not like he was looking for God. You know, in, God was the hunter and he was the, the deer. You know, God hunted him down. Um, but he said, you know, he felt that, you know, even though there are things about church gatherings, you know, like the hymns and the people and so on, that, the, that were awkward to him, he knew he had to commit to it. You know, it, He felt he had to like publicly plant his flag. Now that he had committed himself to God and gotten saved and become part of God's family, he had to really plant his flag. And you know, while Rochelle was doing the, the announcements you know, and saying, you know, we see giving as part of our worship, you know, tithes and offerings, and, 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 and then she said, and you can give an arm. And I, I thought, some of you are going to misunderstand that. And some of you are going to th- think, not yeah, A-L-M, like an arm, but A-R-M. And you're going to think, what kind of a weird church is this? You know, if you're like really committed, you know, you don't just give your money, you, you, you cut off your arm and you give it to them. It's like weird. This is a strange place. <laughs> you know? <laughs> But, and, and, and yes, sometimes church can feel a bit strange and weird and, and there can be misunderstandings and so on. So, but, so why is it important? Why is it important for us as, as people? I mean, look around you. Just look around you and you'll, you'll see we're a very diverse group of people, you know, from multiple backgrounds and cultures and ages and stages in life. So why is it important for us to come together? And the, the word church, if we can just bring up that uh, next slide, the word church, the Greek is um, ekklesia, um, and it, it, it literally means, uh, you know, those who have been called out to gather. And, and it, it was a word that was used in, <clears throat> in sort of the, the Greek culture of, of the early church, you know. They would, when they wanted to have a, a meeting, you know, sort of a discussion about the city, then all the citizens, the official citizens, so not everyone who lived in a city was a citizen, you know, and had voting rights and so on, but those who were citizens were then called to out to, to an ecclesia, a, a gathering, an assembly, a meeting, so that they can make certain important decisions. But that, that's not where the, the church's use of ecclesia comes from, because the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, well, at least the Greek Old Testament, the Israelites were called God's ecclesia. And the reason for that was, how did Israel as a nation originate? And if you, if you remember the story, um, you know, Abraham sort of was the father, uh, and, and, and then came Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob had the 12 patriarchs, and they sold their brother Joseph into slavery into Egypt, but then there was this whole seven-year famine thing, and Long, to make a long story short, 
God raised up Joseph from slavery to second in command in Egypt, and God gave him the wisdom of how to, um, in the seven good years, get enough food together to take care of the known world. And his brothers came in the end to come and buy food from him, but didn't recognize him. But to make a long story short, they all ended up, the whole family, 70 plus of them, ended up in Egypt. But then eventually a pharaoh came along who didn't know Joseph and enslaved the Israelites. But they'd multiplied, you know, so that by the end of 400 odd years, they were over a million people and very strong and a, and a bit of a threat to the Egyptians. And, and the Egyptians had enslaved them and, and, and sort of forced them uh, into forced labor. And then God came and through Moses, he said to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can come and worship me in the desert so they can come and be my people, my nation. And, and the word ecclesia, um, it's sort of made up of two words. Ek means out of in Greek. And the, the, the last word, klesia, comes from kaleo, which means to call, to call out of. And, and they were God's people, his assembly that he had called out of Egypt to come and worship him and to come and be his people. And the early church took that over because they said, we are the continuation. We, as the both collective Jewish and Gentile church, because there's no such thing as a Gentile church or a Jewish church. There's, there's just a church that is both Jewish and Gentile. We are the sort of the continuation of the people of Israel. And we, are, we have been called not out of Egypt, but out of the world. Not being delivered out of slavery under Pharaoh, but... We have been delivered from slavery to Satan and, and, and his spiritual forces that have been oppressing us and enslaving us. And so it's a beautiful thing that I want you to see that happens here. Uh, the new covenant, I mean, it's represented in a few different ways. Uh, you know, it's represented as the new creation. It's also represented as the new kingdom, you know, and Jesus as the son of David who sits on the throne. But it's also represented as the new exodus, and Jesus is the prophet like Moses who leads the new exodus. Okay? In other words, one of the reasons why we scatter to go into the world and be salt and light there and, and, and be the representatives of Jesus there and make a positive contribution and love people and... and sort of represent the new creation there is so that after we've scattered, every week we can gather again. And every week we're basically reenacting the new exodus. Every time you come to a public worship service, you are reenacting what the Israelites did in the Old Covenant and what God has been doing throughout the church age, gathering his people into a new exodus and, and, and you basically, we're gathering in defiance to the oppression of the world and the brokenness of the world and the captivity of the world and saying, we are leaving the world. Come with us. And, and you remember in, in, um, when the Israelites left Egypt, it wasn't just ethnic Israelites who left. There were all kinds of slaves from all nations all over the world who were enslaved in Egypt and they could join and many of them did join the Exodus. But even many Egyptians joined the Exodus and became part of God's people. And that's what we're doing as well. We're saying, listen here, God's judgment is coming on the world. You know, the ten plagues, the, the analogy of the ten plagues. And we are calling you to, with us, join the new Exodus. So every time you come to a church service, 
you are publicly, and we together are publicly enacting a new exodus and saying to the world, come out of slavery, come out of oppression. God is creating something new. Be part of it. Come and join in. And some of you, you know, I mean, most of us probably have already joined that new exodus, and, but we didn't realize how powerful and significant it is when we gather every Sunday. But some of, some of you might be sitting there and you say, you know, I'm still checking this thing out. I don't know if I'm going to join yet. And, but you didn't realize what church was. You thought it was just something that, you know, me and my family do, you know, once in a while, maybe go to church on a Christmas or, or Easter or something like that. It's just sort of a, a habit, a superstition maybe. But you didn't realize the spiritual power and the significance of it. And we need to realize how amazing it is. So that's why we are the church, the ecclesia, and that's why we gather. We, we're reenacting um, the new exodus. You can see there the, the sort of the first picture there. You know, we were very lucky. You know, when the exodus was taking place, there was a satellite that was going over. And they got a, they got a nice photo, you know, of the Red Sea. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Uh, yes. <laughs> and another reason, so, so one of the reasons why we, why we gather publicly is because we're the ecclesia, we're the called out ones, God's special people. But another reason is, is and, and this is sort of a reason that, that sort of envelops all the other reasons and includes all the other reasons as well, is because it's biblical. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, a, a very good scholar, one, one that I really respect and I've learned a lot from, came to, you know, someone organized him to come to, to Joburg and he had lectures for like a, a week or so and I, I attended the lectures and they were very good. <clears throat> um, but then at some stage, I think we were having coffee and I was sitting sort of at the table with him and a few other guys and he mentioned, you know, that... Um, all, all the, the churches in the, in the New Testament were house churches. And I sort of thought about that for a moment. And I, you know, eventually I started asking him about it. But I said, why, why do you say that? And he said, well, it's just, that's the reality. They were all house churches. There weren't any big gatherings. And I said, whoa, <laughs> you know, are, are you sure about that? So we, we had a bit of a discussion. And I took him through a few of these scriptures. And I remember this is a really good theologian, an orthodox theologian, and one I respect. So I took him, for instance, Acts 2 verse 46 and 47 says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Now remember the, the homes part, the small group part. I spoke about that last week. Please listen to that sermon because these two, the large group and the small group, are both equally important. Um, both are essential to church. So I said to him, yes, th- there the homes are, but there's also the temple. There's the small groups in the homes, but there's also the big group in the temple. You know, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, if they only met in their homes behind closed doors privately, there would have been no public testimony so that the people could have favor on them. But because they gathered in the temple also in a big group, an open group, a public meeting, the whole Israel could, or the whole Jerusalem could see them and have favor on them. So it wasn't just one or the other. You know, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And, and the pattern continues throughout Acts. In Acts 5, verse 42, it says, still about the Jerusalem church, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease 
teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So once again, you see both those, the temple and the house. Big group in the temple, uh, large group in the temple, small groups from house to house. Um, both of those. Um, and, and then in Acts 20, now this is outside, this is in the Gentile world. I can't remember, where was this, in Ephesus, somewhere around there. So this is no longer even in Jerusalem or in Israel. This is uh, in, in the Gentile world. Uh, Paul talks about how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public, large group, and from house to house. Can you see the same pattern? Public, big group meeting, small group meetings, uh, from house to house. Um, also in Acts 19 verse 9, at some stage Paul, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not even mentioning this, but Paul would, his, his modus operandi was, he would go to the synagogues, which was a big group meeting where the Jews would meet, he'd go and preach to them as long as they would have him and tolerate him preaching the gospel to them. But then, as it happened here in Acts chapter 19, at, at some stage they, they sort of grew tired of him and, and, and grew re- resistant um, and started, you know, resisting Paul and Barnabas and, and their preaching of the gospel, Paul and Silas and their preaching of the gospel. And, and then it says um, here in verse 9 of Acts 19, But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, the way was... The way, by the way, is the way of the new exodus. I'll make a way in the desert. That comes from Isaiah, uh, verse, uh, chapter 40. So, so the Christianity was called the way because it was recognized as the new exodus. The, the way in the desert. The, the, the way um, uh, to, the, to the promised land, uh, metaphorically speaking. So speaking evil of the way, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples, those who had accepted the gospel and been converted, with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So part of what he did was he took them from a synagogue, big group meeting, to the hall of Tyrannus, another big group meeting, and he continued to teach them the gospel and the word of God. So, you know, I shared all of this with, with this theologian. I said to him, I mean, those are just a couple sort of representative scriptures that show that clearly there were not just house churches and Christians meeting in houses. Yes, there were a lot. And that's very important. But there was also big group meetings in the temple and in the hall of Tyrannus and all kinds of other you know, even the synagogue, for that matter. Um, you know, uh, but he just, and, and I couldn't understand this because I really respect this guy. He just basically dismissed it and, no, no, no. We know that all the churches in the New Testament were house churches. There weren't any big churches. I'm like, you know, 3,000 people got saved on Pentecost, you know. <laughs> and, and they taught them, you know. You're not going to just, the, the, the apostles, were, you know, they taught them specifically the apostles' doctrine. They're not going to go from house to house, you know, in groups of, 20 or 30 and just teach 3,000 people like that. It was in the big group, you know, that, that a lot of that teaching took place. And, but, but he just sort of dismissed that, and, and I couldn't figure that out. It just didn't make sense to me. And then later on, I heard from a mutual friend of ours that this, this theologian, this, this preacher, had been a pastor in a church, you know, in quite a big church, and he'd been really badly hurt in that church. And, and he'd obviously gotten seriously hurt and offended. And he'd sort of, because of that, said, no, I don't believe in big church anymore. I just believe in house churches. And, you know, I thought that, that, that's so telling. So often, when we get hurt because something has been abused, we reject something because it's been abused. And church has been abused and will be abused. There's no perfect church 
like uh, Charles Spurgeon, you know, said to this one guy who came to him, you know, he, he said, I'm, I'm looking for the perfect church. And Spurgeon said to him, listen, you know, our, our church is not the perfect church. We have lots of imperfect people here, lots of sinners who, who are saved by grace and who are in the process of being sanctified. Yes, they've already been perfected spiritually, but, you know, in reality, we are still in the process of being made holy. Um, so, so please don't join our church. And, and may I ask you to please, if you do find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll just mess it up. Because once you join it, it won't be perfect anymore. <laughs> So, there's a lot that you will have opportunity to get hurt in church. But don't judge something by the abuse of it. Just because there are imperfect people like you in church who are going to hurt you, inevitably. Who are going to let you down and disappoint you, inevitably. Don't give up on church. I mean, let's be honest, the Bible... Where's my Bible? The Bible has been abused terribly. But we're not going to say, oh, you know, there are so many cults and sects that base their teachings on the Bible, therefore I don't believe in the Bible anymore. You don't judge something by the abuse of it. And just because we in church get it wrong, some of the time, even um, often, doesn't mean that we should stop believing in church. But the temptation is there, and this theologian fell for that temptation. It's like, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're struggling at school, um, I remember hearing a story about... But a young man, you know, went to school sort of during my time. Um, and and he, he was really struggling in, in, in school, you know. <laughs> he wasn't academically that strong. And he was struggling and not doing well in the tests. And, and he was a little bit ill-disciplined. So he got, you know, in our days, we still got, you still got cuts. You still got a spanking. And, 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 and he, he was really upset about that, not in, enjoying school. And, and so he came to his dad and he said, I don't believe in teachers anymore. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm constantly experiencing the, the sharp end of the stick. You know, I'm sure it's, it's, it's not a pleasant experience to me. And, and so often that can happen. You know, you have an unpleasant experience in church and you say, oh, I don't believe in church anymore. And that's what this, this theologian uh, had done. But the reality is the biblical pattern is there. Both in small groups and in big groups we should um, continue to, to gather um, then another reason why we should go to church, let me just read for us from Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12. In fact, I just want to read verse 3 as well. It says, maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And verse 11 says, and he, that's Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now that's a whole mouthful there. But every two things that that um, scripture talks about, it talks in verse 11 about the mentors that were given so that the saints, and that's all of us, all of God's holy people, can do ministry. So the mentors are give, given to equip the saints for ministry until we all come to maturity. Okay? Now, so it talks about two groups there. It talks about the, the saints who do the ministry and the mentors who equip the saints to do the ministry. Now, there's two things that you have to hold in tension here. The first thing, which we are very which we believe very strongly in, is that every member is a minister. 
You know, I say this often, you know, based on, on, on uh, Peter's letter. Um, we are not a kingdom with priests. We're a kingdom of priests. In other words, everyone who's in the kingdom is a priest and should do ministry. Every member should be a minister. Uh, in, the, in, you know, Martin Luther and the guys, sort of, to correct the, the Middle Age Roman Catholic Church, spoke about the priesthood of all believers because the, the, the Middle Age Roman Catholic Church, and I think even today, Roman Catholic churches talk, talk about priests, you know, as, as in the clergy are priests, implying that the rest of the people are not. The laity are not priests. And, and, and the reformers said, no, that's wrong. We believe, based on the Bible, in the priesthood of all believers, and every member is a priest and therefore a minister. So that's the one side, and that's especially why we need small groups, is because small groups is the place where everyone can minister. In the larger group, it's not practical for everyone to minister. So you have the, the, the members who are ministers, but then you also have the mentors, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And not everyone, I mean, Paul even says that, in, 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 for instance, in 1 Corinthians, not everyone is apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, or teacher. Not everyone is a mentor, if I can put it that way. The mentors are given to equip the saints to do ministry. Now, I see this scripture, Ephesians 4, being misused quite badly. You know, even by, by us in the charismatic church who believe in it. So people will say, no, do this little test and it will show you whether you're a prophet or an apostle or evangelist or a pastor or a teacher. And that completely misses the point of the scripture. Because firstly, the scripture says that not everyone is part of the fivefold ministry, but it says that everyone is supposed to receive from everyone in the fivefold ministry. So you're not supposed to say, oh, I'm a prophet or I'm an evangelist, so you know, this is what I focus on. No, no, no. You're supposed to receive ministry. And I, even as a pastor and a teacher, I'm supposed to receive ministry from apostles, from prophets, from evangelists, from pastors and teachers, because only if I receive fivefold ministry from all the fivefold ministers will I be equipped effectively and sufficiently and thoroughly to do the work of the ministry. So this, this whole thing where you write a little test and like, oh, I'm teacher-orientated or I'm this-orientated. No, no. You're supposed to receive from all of them. You're not supposed to be one-orientated. The fact that I'm part of the fivefold ministry and I'm a teacher doesn't give me an excuse to not preach the gospel. I must learn from evangelists to preach the gospel, and I have. You know, guys like Ray Comfort and Timothy Keller and so on, I've learned a lot about them, and I respect them for how well they preach the gospel. I'm like, I need to learn to do that. Maybe I'm not as natural in that as they are, but I have to learn from them to do that. Maybe I'm not like the, the, the most pioneering person, you know, because apostles are people who break new ground, who plant churches, and who, who reach new nations. So you're apostle, like Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Uh, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. You're an apostle to a people group. I, I'm not naturally the most pioneering person. But I have to go and learn from those guys how to plant churches and be part of that. Um, but much of that equipping happens in the big group so that the ministry of every member can happen in the small group. It's not practical that the apostles can teach the apostles' doctrine in little small groups, you know, to thousands of people all across the city of Jerusalem. That happened primarily in the big group in the temple. And then they sent these um, 
people that they've equipped in the temple, in the large group, with the apostles' doctrine, etc., and sent them to the small groups and said, now go and minister. Does, does that make sense? So if you, if you neglect the small groups, then every member won't be able to be a minister. But if you, remember, if you, if you neglect the large group, the temple, then the members won't be thoroughly equipped to be minister. Now, what happens then is, you know, people start saying, uh, and this has happened throughout church history, you know, okay, you know, all, all of us are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and then what happens is they just, I mean, they just become false prophets, false, false apostles, false, evan- false evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and I mean, that's why if you look at the global church, there's such a mess. I mean, I, I was, uh, Rochelle and I were, we were uh, pastors in Franschhoek from 2005 to 2010. Uh, and, you know, Franschhoek was still based, you know, having come out of um, sort of apartheid. It, it was still very segregated. You had this, this, the, the town of Franschhoek where um, mostly white people lived, and many of them were, were sort of foreigners, who swallows who only came during the summer. And then you had Grundal, which was the traditionally colored community. And then you had Chochombeni, which was the, the traditionally black community. And, and in Grundal, you had, I think, between ten and 12,000 people. Is that, is that right? Some, somewhere in that ballpark. And you had more than 50 churches. And many of them were just little churches where, because everyone wants to be apostle so-and-so or, or pastor or evangelist so-and-so. Um, and the reality is, many there was so much false teaching and so much deception and so much hurt that came because of that, because of people who are self-appointed leaders, not people who have been recognized by the church uh, and anointed by God um, to do that. So every member is a minister, but there are people who are appointed specially and trained to equip the saints for the work of, of, of ministry. Um, I mean, maybe I, sh- I should just read you one scripture just sort of to, to reinforce that. Um, in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, Paul's talking about elders. So elders obviously is a subgroup of more experienced, wise leaders in the church. And he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So, so what he's saying is not even all the elders do preaching and teaching. So, so there are spe- we have to recognize that there are people who are specifically called for, for that. But everyone must be equipped by the fivefold ministry to do the work of the ministry, by each of the fivefold ministry to do the work of the ministry. Then another reason why we gather publicly is because um, the church is a public witness. I mean, if, if, you, if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians um, 14, verse 23, it says, If therefore the whole church comes together. Now, now notice here he's talking in the context of sometimes the church comes together, but it's not the whole church that comes together in one place. In other words, the church comes together, but it's, the church is coming together in small groups in, from house to house. But then there are some times when the whole church comes together in, in a large group. 
You know, in Jerusalem it was in the temple. In Corinth it would have been somewhere else, in, but some other public gathering. And he says, and all speak in tongues, and outsiders and unbelievers enter. Will they not say uh, that you are out of your mind? So these are clearly public, open public meetings, not sort of private behind closed doors in the house, but open public meetings where the public is invited in and is welcome. So outsiders can come in. In other words, a church must have large public meetings where outsiders can come in. It is a community where there's a clear line between those who are part of the community and those who are not. But those who are part of the community, it's an open community in the sense that it's, it's a community that's constantly inviting people in. Constantly inviting people in. And the people come in, get exposed to the community, hopefully experience the love of the community, hear the truth of the gospel, which says that you cannot earn your way into this community. The only way to get into this community is to receive the free salvation that God offers you. Now, there are many misconceptions about how you become part of the church. You know, some, I was sort of raised in the Dutch Reformed Church, and I I just thought I was saved. Because, number one, I was christened as as a little baby, and I was raised in a Christian family. And it took me a while to realize that, you know, being raised in a Christian family, in a Christian home, doesn't make you a Christian any more than, you know, being born into a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian any more than being born in a garage make you a motor car. Or that being born in a bakery would make you a loaf of bread. You know, just because you're born somewhere doesn't mean you, you, know, you, you have to become a Christian. You know? It took me a while to realize that. And, and for many people it does take a while to realize that. And, and, and you become a Christian by believing in Christ and becoming a follower of Christ. And, and it's, a, it's a covenant. In other words, if you're a Christian, you'll know about it. You don't sort of trip and sort of fall into Christianity by accident. Oops, you know, I became a Christian. I didn't even realize it. <laughs> it just like when you get married, you, you, you don't sort of get married and then it's like, oops, what happened? You know, am I married all of a sudden? No, you stand, you make a covenant. You stand in front of witnesses before the congregation and before God and you make covenant promises. You say to your spouse, you know, I'll love you for the rest of my life. You know, all that I have, I share with you. My wife often reminds me of that. <laughs> especially, especially when I'm eating and I have chocolates or something. She said, all that you have is mine. <laughs> and all that I have is mine or two. So she sort of twists the... <laughs> everything that's yours is mine and everything that's mine is mine. <laughs> no. But you make vows in front of God and the congregation. And, and you, you put rings on one another's fingers. And Christianity is a covenant like that. Spiritually speaking, whether there's someone present or not, spirit, I mean, the angels are present, God is present. You know, sometimes publicly before congregation, you make that commitment. But, but you make vows to God, to Jesus. And you say, Lord, I want to enter into a marriage-like covenant with you. And, and maybe you don't exchange rings, but you, there's the sign of the covenant. The Holy Spirit is called the sign of the new covenant. Um, and you're not going to be, become a Christian without knowing about it. And, and as you do, you, you're saved not only into a relationship with Jesus, but into a relationship with his church, which he calls his body, the body of Christ. I mean, when Paul, uh, Saul, 
um, who at that stage, before he became Paul the Apostle, was persecuting the church. I mean, he was killing people, throwing them in prison and so on. When Jesus on the road to Damascus confronted him and knocked him off his high horse, Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Jesus said, who are you, Lord? Because he didn't know who was, uh, Paul said, or Saul said, who, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, Jesus, that was after the ascension. Jesus had ascended into heaven. He was sitting at the right hand of the Father. How could Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Father, say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because the church is Jesus' body. I mean, if you take a hammer and you hit my little finger, I'm not going to say, oh, look, you're persecuting my little finger. Poor little finger. <laughs> I'm going to feel what my little finger feels. <laughs> whatever my little finger feels, because it's part of me, I feel it. So whatever you feel, whatever we feel as the body of Christ, Jesus feels it. When you get hurt, he gets hurt. He feels it. When you get persecuted, he gets persecuted. So you become part, not, you don't only enter into a relationship with Jesus, but with his church. And, and a, clearly it's a relationship. Jesus takes his relationship with the church often more seriously than we take our relationship with the church. Jesus recognizes that there's more connection between us as the uh, as the church with one another as a body and with him as the head of the body than we often recognize. But every time we come together like this, we are celebrating that connection. We're saying publicly we are saved not only into a relationship with Jesus, but into a relationship with his body, with his church, with one another. You're saved into a community, into a family, into a body. Does that make sense? Can you see how often we underestimate the profound spiritual significance of this. And when we come together, we're publicly declaring that we are one in Christ. And we're inviting others to also become one in Christ. And saying, just like there was grace for us to be saved, there's grace for you to be saved. And then, um, just one last point. Jesus habitually attended church. I'm skipping a few scriptures here. Luke 4 verse 16, it says... And, and Jesus, he, Jesus came to Nazareth and he, uh, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So it says... As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And it was Jesus, it was, he habitually, it was his custom to every week go to the synagogue and either receive the reading of Scripture and, and the preaching or himself read Scripture and preach. Okay? And what I want you to notice, if you, if you go on to First Corinthians 5, Verse 4 to 7, and this is, this is just one example of a scripture. It says, when you are assembled, and, and just interesting there, the word assemble there is, when, when you assemble is um, a version of the word soon ago. Soon ago, okay? And you can, you can hear that it's related to synagogue. Can you hear that? Soon ago 
is the word from which the word's the noun, it's the verb from which the noun synagogue is derived. So he's saying, when you assemble as in a synagogue, if I can put it that way, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man, this is a guy who committed adultery with his stepmother, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good, because they were boasting about you know, stuff instead of you know, taking steps to, to remedy this. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump um, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So he's saying as, when you gather, when you assemble as in a synagogue in the name of Jesus... And his power, Jesus' power is present. In other words, we saw it was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue when he was on earth during his earthly ministry. It's still his custom to come to church. Jesus has never stopped coming to church. And when, he, when we gather as a church, like synagogue-like gathering as a church public community, Jesus' power is present in a special way because that's what Paul says. You know, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, um, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. So the power of the Lord Jesus is present in a special way when we gather corporately. And, 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 and that's why God often does miracles, you know, when we gather corporately. We, we've seen this. We've experienced this ourselves. We, we've read about it in Scripture. We've heard about it in church history. There's, there's a special anointing when we get together. And that's why we do altar calls. And, and I want to encourage you, you know, let's be a church that takes that power of the Lord that is present when we gather corporately, publicly for worship. Let's take it seriously. Let's not just be spectators who sit and listen to the word, but let's be participants who, who receive the word and who make up our minds to respond to it. And often there's an anointing to change your life when the altar call is made. And then sometimes you're afraid and you're sort of old back and you sit and you don't receive the ministry and you think, I'll go home and deal with it. But the same anointing and the same grace is not always present. And then your life doesn't change. And you, you, we so often, because of all kinds of silly reasons, we miss what God wants to do in our lives. Because a lot of what... It, you can think now. Just think about this. There are good reasons why Jesus wants to do miracles in your life publicly and not just at home. Because he wants the miracle he does in your life to be a public testimony that will help other people believe and receive miracles from him. And yes, it does take a bit of courage sometimes to respond publicly when the power of the Lord Jesus is present publicly. But I mean... Jesus is our Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us publicly. If he was willing to publicly die for us, shouldn't we be willing to publicly respond to him and experience his power so that we can publicly put his power on display for the world to see? And according to Ephesians 3 verse 10, even for the powers and principalities to see. Hmm? Amen. I'm going to ask Mariana if you can just quickly come forward and she's got a quick testimony that, that she also wants to... Um, share with us in, uh, just in closing. But I want to I ask you while Mariana's coming up, do you realize 
Do you realize how profound and how powerful it is when we gather corporately, publicly? Or, or, or do you, like me, sometimes underestimate what is happening here? And if you underestimate it, like I sometimes do, maybe you need to bring your heart to the Lord and sort of recommit yourself to it and say, God, I need to take this, what is happening here, I need to take this more seriously. Hello, lovely family. It's a really huge privilege to stand here and, and testify about what God does why he pulls and tugs me here every morning. Um, as he was talking, it was almost like God was un, um, unleashing a word. It's like a spiritual um, magnetic field. I have no control over it because I was brought up in the same type of household as Becca was and as Henny was. And I thank God for my parents. But in the end and in the beginning, it's all about God. Coming here is all about God. It's all about the saving of my life, of Jesus Christ, my loving Jesus Christ. And it's all about experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. When you people lead and we contribute and we participate in this corporate, blessed um, praise and worship, there is no better place to be on a Sunday morning but here. So anybody who doubts, there is no better place to be because this is where God opens my spiritual eyes and my spiritual ears anew every time so that I can tackle the week or forget what's passed in the week before and sit in his quiet time, sit by his still waters and be refreshed. So thank you very much for allowing me that. Thanks, Mariana. So I want to um, read you something um, that I discovered online. It was a, a lady, Frances Ridley uh, Hovergall, a British hymnist, who I think it was in the 1800s somewhere, made a list of eight reasons for going to church, even on rainy days. Okay? I, I, like, I like the eighth one. I think you're going to like it as well. The first one is she said, God has blessed the Lord's day, making no um, exceptions for stormy days. Number two, I expect my minister to be there. I'd be surprised if he stayed home for the weather. Number three, I might lose out on the prayers and sermon that would have done me great good. I mean, just think about this for a moment. Sometimes you go through a difficult week. You, you maybe didn't attend church. You, you, you didn't go to small group. Think about how often maybe you missed the very word you needed, the wisdom you needed, the encouragement you needed that would have taken you through that week because you just weren't there when God was giving it. You didn't position yourself to receive it. And so often, I mean, we've all done that. So there's no condemnation if you've experienced that because we've, we've all done that, you know. Uh, and then something that God would have wanted to prepare us for in the week, a difficult week, we, we really slogged through it and it was terrible, whereas it could have been a victory and it could have grown our faith because we could have looked back and said, well, actually on Sunday, God, through the word, prepared me for this. And yes, it was difficult, but... I could make it through this week because of what God... And, and, and your faith in God would have been encouraged. But then you missed out on that opportunity. So, number four, she says, uh, For any important business, rainy, rain doesn't keep me home. And church attendance is, in God's sight, very important. I mean, you won't miss a, a meeting at your work because it's raining, for instance. I think that's 
sort of what she's trying to say. Number five, she says, bad weather reveals on what foundation my faith is built. It will prove how much I love Christ. True love rarely fails to keep an appointment. And, and what we can know is we have an appointment here, not just with one another, but with Jesus. He's present here. We're entering into fel- the fellowship of the Trinity when we gather like this um, or when we gather like small group. God never misses that appointment with us. And if we love him, we should, we should keep, uh, try as our, our level best to keep that appointment with him as well. Number six, those who stay at home from church because it's rainy frequently miss on fair Sundays too. I must not take one step in that direction. In other words, just like gathering becomes um, a habit, so neglecting to gather also becomes a habit. Number seven, the Bible contains a special promise uh, that where two or three are gathered in Christ's name, he will be in the midst of them. We read one of those promises in in 1 Corinthians 5. And then the one I like most, number eight, is she says, I don't know how many more Sundays God may give me, and it would be poor preparation for my first Sunday in heaven to have missed my last Sunday on earth. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) What I want to leave you with is what we are doing here is more significant, more profound, and more powerful than we realize. Just by being here, you are making a public testimony. You are part of the new exodus. You are leading. You are saying, come come with us. Come with us. We're leaving the world and we're entering God's new kingdom, which he will ultimately consummate when Christ comes again. The kingdom has already started. It's already, it's not yet, it's already Inaugurate, it's not yet consummated, but we're part of it. Come leave this world. Leave it behind. Come and be part of what God is doing. And it's powerful. More powerful than we realize. And right now, God's power, the Lord Jesus' power, is present in a special way to tweak your heart. So let's stand and let's respond to that. First, I just, if you can just bring up that 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 again. It says at the end of that verse, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And I just want to give an opportunity, if you've not yet become part of the new exodus, if you've not yet become part of officially of God's church, if you've not yet stepped into covenant with Jesus, I just want you to realize, just like... God commanded the Israelites that a a lamb had to be slain for each household and the blood of the lamb had to be painted on the doorposts to protect them from the angel of death and so that they could leave sort of the, that that was, the the angel of death was sort of the last, the straw that broke the camel's back, you know, the last plague that, that forced Pharaoh to send, to let God's people go. So, so with Jesus, he's the Passover lamb. In order for us to be able to leave slavery in the world under the, the Pharaoh of this world, Satan, Jesus had to be sacrificed for us as the Passover lamb. I want you to see, if you're not yet a Christian, how much Jesus loves you and what a high price he was willing to 
pay for you so that you can be set free, so that you can become part of his exodus, which he's, he's leading, and so that he can lead you to the promised land, to the heavenly promised land. Can you see? I mean, has anyone else ever died for you, given their life for you? Well, right as you're standing here this morning, you can know that there's someone who loved you so much that they were willing to die for you. Maybe you say, you know, I don't even know if my parents love me enough to die for me. Jesus loves you enough to die for you. And he's the only one who loves you that much. Don't you want to respond to that life? And even as he gave his life for you, don't you want to respond and give your life to him? So let's close our eyes. Just close your eyes and focus on the Lord. If you're here this morning and you say, I want to respond to that. I realize now that how much it costs Jesus to buy my freedom, to redeem me from slavery into freedom. And I want to respond to that. I want to, I want to give my life to him as he gave his life to me. I, I, I realize I've been coming to church, but I, I haven't been a Christian. But I want to become a Christian. I want to become part of the body of Christ. If that's you this morning, I just want you to, to, to raise your hand. Be, be very bold and raise your hand. Jesus was crucified in public for you. I want you to be bold and in public respond to his love. Just put up your hand and say, that's me. I need to respond to that. Is there anyone like that? Just put up your hand and wave it to me. Remember, the power of Jesus is present in a special way to save right now. Now is the time to respond. Now is the time to call upon the name of the Lord. And you don't have to deserve it. You, you don't have to say, oh, I'm not good enough. Yes, you aren't good enough. That's why you need to respond. You don't have to be good enough. Jesus doesn't save you because of good things that you've done, because of your perfect track record, because you don't have a perfect track record. He saves you because of his perfect track record. And when you respond to him, his perfect track record is given to you. Is there anyone who says, I need to respond? I need to be saved? Just put up your hand quickly if that's you. Okay. Then, for us as Christians who are, who have been saved into this community, probably all of us to some extent underestimate what is happening, happening here right now. And I want you to write now things that have in the past kept you away from fully committing to this community, to gathering with this community, and to experiencing the benefit of that gathering and to be part of the witness of that gathering. Anything in your heart that has either prevented you from doing it or from doing it as well as you should, I just want you to bring that to the Lord as a Christian and say, Lord, I repent of this. Please remove this from my heart. Please help me to change the habits that have kept me away from this public gathering and this public witness. Just in your own words. Just going to give you a minute or two to bring your heart before the Lord.
I, I just feel two things that the Lord wants us to respond. The, the first thing is, I, I just feel the Lord Jesus saying, whenever you gather like this, I'm here in a special way. To me, this is important and this is sacred. You know what sacred means? Sacred means the opposite of common. It's, 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 it's something that's dedicated to the Lord. And, and I, I just feel the Lord says, this time is dedicated to me. And I want you to dedicate it to me. I want you to see it not as just something I do, but as something sacred where I meet with the Lord. And, and, and if you haven't yet done so, I just want you to consecrate in your heart this time as sacred to me and say, God, Sundays, I'm going to make time because it's sacred. I'm going to make time to gather with your people whenever I, you know, whenever I can. So just in your own heart, in your own words, do that. I just feel the Lord says, he's, he's, you know, because we have been doing that, He is pleased with it. It, it blesses Him. And I, I feel another reason the Lord says is why we sometimes don't gather is because, you know, sometimes there are people in church who irritate us, people who are imperfect, people who sort of step on our toes or get on our nerves. But I just feel the Lord Jesus say, you know, none of you are perfect, and yet Every time you gather, I am excited to meet with you, to be with you in a very special way. And if I can be excited about me as the only perfect person, the only perfect human being who ever lived, if I can be excited to gather with all of you as imperfect human beings, then you can be excited about gathering with one another as imperfect human beings and with me as Jesus as a perfect human being Lord just all old habits Lord all irritations all misconceptions and wrong thinking that that have kept us away from making the most of this public gathering and, and, and witness we just we just break its power over our minds over our hearts and over our lives in Jesus name we break its power and we pray Lord that from now on you'll just take us to the next level and that every time we get together it'll be so special and we'll really experience Lord Jesus your power which is present here in our midst in Jesus name Lord I pray Lord that every prayer that was prayed Lord every every area in which every person here asked Lord you to change their lives to set them free I pray that you'll answer those prayers in Jesus name and set your people free and bless them in Jesus name Amen Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.